Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. My name is Maya Allison. I am the director of the art gallery at NYU Abu Dhabi and the chief curator of the campus. And I wanted to introduce this panel just to tell you a little bit about how we got to where we are, because this is a very important exhibition for us. Our gallery is modeled on the sort of American university museum gallery. We're a non-commercial, non-collecting, intimate university museum. So it's confusing because we're, we don't have a collection, but we are working on museum quality exhibitions. Our, one of the key parts of our mission as a university gallery is to develop new ideas, new thinking, new ways of thinking about exhibitions, partnering with non-curators to bring in expertise that we might not have in-house. And so for us, this week marks a new chapter in the history of the university gallery here. Thursday, we opened a major exhibition titled Invisible Threads, Technology and Its Discontents. For this, our gallery curator, Banna Katan, partnered with our guest curator, Scott Fitzgerald, who's a member of our faculty. This curatorial partnership brings the specialist perspective and expertise of a non-curator to bear on a curatorial project, a process that's a key part of our long-term mission as a venue to generate original, academic, and creative material in the form of curated exhibitions. After the panel today, we'll proceed as a group to the main gallery. So once we're done with the panel discussion, we'll all walk over in the non-sunny side of campus to our gallery, where we'll have a tour with the curators and there'll be light refreshments and a reception. So I hope you'll follow us there. I am uh, very delighted now to introduce the host of our panel, Shuman Basar. He's a remarkable writer, thinker, and cultural critic. His edited books include Translated by Cities from Zero, and Hans Ulrich Obrist Interviews, Volume 2. He's Commissioner of the Global Art Forum and at Art Dubai, Editor-at-Large of Tank Magazine, and Contributing Editor of Bidoon Magazine, Director of the Format Program at the AA School, and a founding member of Fondazione Prada's Thought Council. The author, Gianluigi Ricuperati, writes of him, it is clear to see why Bassar's work appeals to those interested in deepening and refining their learning and in bringing together an appreciation of ancient texts, cultural phenomena like modernism and the sciences. And this is a big part of why I invited him here today. I've deeply admired his work for years as the commissioner of the Global Art Forum at Art Dubai. When I first saw him, I thought, there's something really interesting going on in how he brings together different ideas. And this is very much what I look for when I'm looking for sort of curatorial exchange among experts and non-experts. But I thought of him for this panel in particular because he's the co-author of a book called The Age of Earthquakes, A Guide to the Extreme Presence with Douglas Copeland and Hans Ulrich Obrist. The book itself is a kind of artwork. It's full of playful, terrifying thought pieces on subjects like technology, the future, and its relationship to our humanity. So I actually have this book at my desk, and like for fun, this is one of the things I like to read, especially as we were thinking about this exhibition. So I was really, really delighted when he agreed to come and moderate this panel, and you'll get to hear some bits of his book as part of this panel discussion. 
Please join me in welcoming Shimon Basar. Thanks so much to, to Maya, thank you to the Institute um, for the invitation. It's the first time for me to be speaking here and it's a great pleasure and privilege. Um, thank you all for coming this late afternoon. Um, so this is an opportunity to talk to the curators of the exhibition, to Scott Fitzgerald and Bala Katan, about the backstory to the show, which some of you may have seen and if you haven't, as Maya said, we'll, we'll see it afterwards. And we're also going to talk to two of the featured artists, uh, Monira Al-Qadiri and Sabrina Versti, about their specific projects in the show and their um, practices in general. I'll introduce each of our guests in detail as we go along. So for now, I just want to start by saying that there's every chance uh, that every one of you here is more of an expert on technology than I am. Technology's ubiquity, its everywhereness, its every timeness, makes us all practitioners of its theory pretty much every waking and non-waking second of the day. So technology is at its most perfected form, perhaps when we don't see it, and therefore when we do not think it anymore. This is the invisibility, maybe in the title of the exhibition, Invisible Threads. So I've been having a theory for a while now, uh, which I can't exactly prove yet, but my theory is that technology has now assumed the cultural uh, discursive role that science did from the European Enlightenment to the end of the 20th century. Our existential fears, the kind that played out in a book like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, these fears have turned instead to technology. We have big data, artificial intelligence, machine labor, and of course machine labor is nothing new. Um, it goes way, way back, perhaps, to the invention of the first tool, and then certainly from the Industrial Revolution onwards. Um, and ultimately, uh, perhaps more than anything, there's the fear of human obsolescence caused by clever algorithms, which for some reason always look and sound like Scarlett Johansson. Some conspiracy that Hollywood has uh, some, knows something about Scarlett Johansson that the rest of us don't. So this anxiety um, that could be drawn all the way back to Prometheus and the invention of fire is, of course, also buoyantly countered by Silicon Valley's techno-utopianism. Just this week, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan announced their commitment to cure all diseases by the year 2100, or in their own words, in the lifespan of their own children. And that's an interesting unit because already by their definition we're all living longer so maybe so the, the idea is that their young child now will live all the way till uh, at least 2100 and, and one way in which they think they're able to propagate this or to take this further is to allow artificial intelligence to intervene in medical research then we have google's own research institute initiative google x which like that of elon musk's seeks to answer previously unanswerable, indeed hubristic questions about the natural limits of man and indeed machine. The truth is human nature doesn't change, only our technology does. Every new technology allows us to learn something new about ourselves. And isn't it strange that your mother knows what an algorithm is? In 1967, this paperback was published. It's called The Medium is the Massage. And it was a collaboration between uh, a Canadian professor of literature, 
but also the first media theorist, Marshall McLuhan, a graphic designer called Quentin Fiore, and a book producer called Jerome Agel. This book went on to become a bestseller, as well as a graphic design classic. What this book looks at is something called the electric information age. It's the era of televisions, radios, advertising. And Marshall McLuhan had written a book three years before called Understanding Media, and a number of other books before that, like The Gutenberg Galaxy. And one of the things that McLuhan was very interested in is the way in which we essentially make tools, and those tools can be technological, of course, and those tools, through a system of feedback, how we use them, remake who we are. He also had, he had a notion of feedback and feed-forward, it described all the things that we make, particularly these tools and technological inventions, as extensions of man, right? So in, in a sense, you could... A room like this is a, the, the, the distinction between you and the room is not as discreet as you might think it is. In a way, the you and the room, there are all these interconnected ways in which you and the room are actually the same subject and the same object. Marshall McLuhan died in 1980, so he didn't get to see the internet. Douglas Copeland and Zorik Obrist and myself, we wondered what would Marshall McLuhan have made of today? What kind of effects would he have witnessed that we're all enthralled to? So this led us to make, as uh, Maya mentioned, uh, a book which we think of as the 21st century sequel to the medium of the, the medium of the, is the massage. Uh, we titled our book The Age of Earthquakes, A Guide to the Extreme Present. And this term, uh, the extreme present, is our attempt to give name to our historical and technologically saturated era, where the future isn't far away anymore. It isn't something that happens, uh, that's yet to happen. It's something we're inhabiting right now. And the past is something that you don't have to remember precisely because you upload it to the cloud, which is perhaps a server farm somewhere in Estonia, and you hope that you'll have Wi-Fi at the right time when you need to remember it, and that you can download it. So this kind of double compression, where the future moves from something way ahead of us to something now, and we, in a sense, delete, that we delete our a, a specific capacity to, to remember the past, results in the extreme present. The extreme present is the two seconds that your social feed takes to refresh. So when you drag your thumb down at the top of the screen and you wait for it to refresh, somewhere it's roughly, it's getting faster, of course, but it's about two seconds. Two seconds is also uh, the time that the brain, neuro neurologists say that the brain measures the present as somewhere between two and 2.5 seconds. So anything before that is the past, every, anything or the future, and everything longer than that is the past, right? And uh, it's been proven recently that somewhere between 2.0 and 2.7 seconds is the average time people spend looking at an artwork in a museum or a, or a gallery these days. So this is kind of magic two seconds. And in a way, this is a kind of unit of the extreme present that we're talking about. So what we... What we like to believe is that we haven't just changed the structure of our brains, we've changed the structure of our planet. So that's a, just a little introduction to some of my interest in some of the themes that 
I've just seen in the exhibition next door. And we're going to kind of explore some of them with our, with our guests now. So I'm going to introduce the curators of the exhibition. Bana Katan is a curator at New York University Abu Dhabi Art Gallery and the manager of the NYUAD project space. During her graduate work at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, she worked with the performance department at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago and the curatorial department of the Guggenheim Abu Dhabi project in New York. Scott Fitzgerald is a media artist whose work has been performed and exhibited throughout the USA, Europe and Asia. His work explores the transition between the physical and the digital world using new technologies as expressive tools. He's currently an assistant art professor and the program head of interactive media here at the NYU Abu Dhabi. And before that, Scott was the head of documentation for Arduino, which is an open hardware platform created for artists and designers. Will you please join me in welcoming Banner and Scott? Welcome. I just had the pleasure of seeing the exhibition with you, with, with all of us, but perhaps for, for those in the audience who haven't been there yet, maybe we could start by both of you telling us how and why the exhibition came together, and then we can maybe get into some of the details about it. And how did this, this collaboration between the two of you start? It's one of the missions um, of the NYUAD Art Gallery to ask members of the faculty to co-curate with us, um, as well as people from the community. And uh, Scott's expertise in this field uh, was crucial to um, this collaboration. So Scott, uh, about a year and a half ago, curated an exhibition in the project space, or a smaller space on campus, uh, with another professor. Um, and it was very well received by the community, um, both internally at NYU and externally in the community. And so I invited him to join me again in curating a bigger show in the main gallery. How did things start? We had, uh, we, well, we, we had a lot of discussions over the course of six months to a year. And we were originally talking about, we started talking about works that broke things. So talking about glitch art and things like that. And we realized that what we were really most interested in was how we related to these tools and technologies and how we couldn't really relate to them uh, ex expressly in the same way that we would relate to a human being. So we can't necessarily talk back to these things and they don't work the way we expect them to. We can't engage in a conversation and be like, well, why did you do that? And it'll give some, you know, reasonable answer. And, the, and it was from these discussions about our own anxieties and fears about the things that we're constantly using, these tools that we're using, that uh, the theme of the, sh the show emerged. So did the, and uh, maybe the title, did you have the title at the beginning? Did it come later on? It's uh, Invisible Threads, right? Yes. So. Uh, the title was something that we actually went back and forth. <laughs> we went back and forth over for a while. What we were really interested in uh, expressing with the title was this idea that um, these tools and technologies surround us and they have faded in many ways into the background of our lives. And it's not something that we readily acknowledge, but we are reliant on them at all points in time. We wanted to use this as an excuse to start a dialogue about the role that these tools play, you know, uh, 
in every aspect of our lives. A lot of the artwork in the show um, is either exposing technology or um, is technology exposing us, both in both ways, uh, invisibly. Can you remember some of the titles that you rejected? Come on, what was the worst one? I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the, the worst one was. But for for a while, we can we did have a working title of the Emperor's New Clothes, and I think that the the title that we wound up with is in some way it's a descendant of that. And I mean, I don't necessarily want. As hopefully, we will all go and see the show. But maybe you could just give us a kind of little mental preview as to what what we encounter as we as we move uh, move through the exhibition. Uh, maybe through a couple of examples. Uh, so the we we wanted to identify a particular point in time at which the show would start, because it's. Technology is just, um, we're, we're surrounded by it at all points in time. So whether it's paper on pencil or, you know, using a wheel, these are technologies as well. But we wanted to start at a finite point in time that we could sort of begin the discussion. So sort of the anchor piece of the show is a piece by Michael Gray called My Sputnik, which is a one-to-one uh, scale replica of the Sputnik satellite, the first artificial satellite that was sent into space. And we see that as sort of the starting point for, for uh, that, that marks this point in time where the entire world was in awe of what we could accomplish. But for, particularly for people in the West, it was also created this intense anxiety about, oh, we're being, you know, there, there's, we're, we're losing out in this sort of technological race, right? Um, And so we really started the show with that, and that's actually the first piece that you encounter when you walk into the gallery. Yeah, there's a, a couple of pieces that seem um, a little a discussion of the future as well. Um, one of which is Munira's piece, uh, Spectrum Two. Um, I won't tell you too much about it because she will. There's a piece that we had originally planned as a piece about the future by Heather Dewey Hagborg uh, called Stranger Visions. And it ended up being actually a piece about the present. Kind of uh, some of the pieces that we expected uh, to be viewed a certain way ended up uh, transitioning into something else when they were actually here and on the wall. I mean, and is there a specific way in which this kind of art inhabits the gallery space that's that's unique? I imagine you weren't setting out to. This is not uh, an attempt to put together a generation, a generational show, but maybe that. Maybe that happens by accident. Could you say something about because there there are there's one piece in particular that has a very direct engagement with the with the gallery wall, mm-hmm. for example. Maybe you could say something about that. Yes. Yeah, so the specific piece um, that he's referring to is called "Alerting Infrastructure" by Jonah Bruckner Cohen. It's a physical hit counter. So um, you're may be familiar with hit counters that people used to put on their websites that identified the number of visitors that they've had. Uh, so Jonah, um, Jonah's piece is uh, a hammer drill that is mounted against the wall of the gallery, and every time somebody visits the NYUAD art gallery website, the drill is activated and starts to destroy the gallery itself. Th- that's actually a piece that I've been aware of for a really long time, and uh, I was so excited to bring it here. And I think that uh, for when I first presented it, people were really <laughs> what, what you want to do what to the gallery? Um, even, you know, e- even now people still kind of like get this sort of look like you, you can do that. It's funny that you related that to um, 
you said that uh, a generational mm. exhibition because that's actually the second oldest piece in the show. It's mm. the piece that's Sputnik is the oldest piece uh, made in 1990, and that one is the second oldest piece. I mean, obviously, we we can read all kinds of things into 1990. I guess that was a function of you choosing that work, so that the show chronologically starts then. But obviously, it's it's a year after Tim Berners Lee sort of launches the World Wide Web. Obviously, it's the end of the post-Soviet, uh, well, that the kind of the collapse of the of this bipolar Soviet Cold War world. But was that was that just a little bit of luck? Oh, or was that again something quite for for you important in terms of this chronology to sort of say, well, you know, there's a there's a technological bracket that starts at nineteen at nineteen ninety. It was actually more. It, it really was fortuitous more than anything yeah. else. Um, I think that I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure of the the specific genesis of the work, but I think that Michael did create it in reaction to the fall of yeah. the Soviet Union. So the subtitle of the show is "Technology and Its Discontents." So who are the discontents in the title, or is it is it too much to give it away? So obviously, it's a, I mean, it's a ref, there's a reference to the famous Freud book or a long essay, "Civilization and Its Discontents." So, do you say something about this word "discontents"? Because uh, I mean, Freud obviously meant something. What do you mean by it here? We tend to take technology at face value and really embrace it unquestioningly, right? We, we, every year or two, we go out and we buy the latest model of the phone that's being produced um, without really wondering if it, we need to, right? If there is any sort of real beneficial impact on our lives. And I think that um, what we're trying to get across, with that, at least for me, you know, I, I feel that um, even though I work with technology as a tool and a medium for myself, I'm not particularly happy with it. I'm, I'm usually trying to convince myself of the utility of working with these tools. So I think in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a personal <laughs> reflection more than anything else. So you're the discontented in the title, exactly. basically. It was like Technology and Scott was the, was the working title. So there's a version of art history, and one orthodoxy of art history, that could be told as a story of media, right? You could... You talk about the advent of tempura, then oils, then acrylic, industrial steel, celluloid film, television, etc. Right? In the 1990s, uh, there was a lot of hysteria about the so-called post-media moment. Do you feel like you're curating a historical moment that yields its own historical medium? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of works that deal with media. What's interesting about the word media or medium is this double veil. It means something in the art world and it means something for everyone else. But I'm wondering whether, you know, we'll be talking about how we can begin to speculate the present from the vantage point of the future in a minute with Munira. But I wonder whether, again, whether by putting this together, you're, I mean, is there a historical project at, at play as well, what you're trying to do here? in relation to, to the school of thought that thinks of art as a procession of media? I think that the exhibition is actually trying to uh, get away from that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we have a piece by Taisir Botniji um, that's a work on paper, that is pencil on paper, I should say, that is a meditation on technology and how it actually is not doing us justice. 
and then there's a it goes all the way to Sebrin space. So it's almost like widening the, the media or the thought that people like to link art and technology shows to. Mm. And, and, and in your opinion, what have been some of the important art technology shows of the last 10, 20 years? I mean, have there been ben benchmarks, things that you've, you've looked at or that, that figure in this kind of, in this discourse? There's festivals and galleries and shows that are going on all the time that mm -hmm. directly relate to art and technology. And a lot of times I think that they're just using technology as like sort of the, the gimmick, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, here's a show and it's got all these like moving, blinking, beeping things. So we'll lump that all together. I don't think the technology should be sort of like pigeonholed into this, in, in this way where it's separate from the rest of the contemporary art world. I think that it has a place in it that can flow very easily, and that's one of the things that we try to do, where we have sculptural pieces. We've got, you know, uh, pencil works on paper. We didn't want something that felt only of its own, like reflecting on itself, mm -hmm. essentially. Okay, we're going to kind of keep this brisk. I have a number of kind of quickfire questions that I'm going to ask uh, all of our guests, and so... The first one goes to you, Banna. Do you feel like uh, you should be famous? I should be famous? Yes, do you feel like you should be famous? Absolutely Answers not. must be very short. Absolutely not. No? No, I think curators should do a little less jet-setting. Okay. Scott, if you were to become famous, what would it be for? <laughs> <laughs> if I were to become famous, it would probably be for something that I can't mention on stage. Okay. 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 Great. And uh, this to both of you. Uh, do you wish you could be interviewed? Never. Uh, no. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, thank you very much, Scott and Banner. <laughs> so I'd like to introduce uh, the first of our two artists joining us today. Maria Al Kadiri uh, is a Kuwaiti artist visual artist, born in Senegal and educated in Japan. She received her PhD in Intermedia Art from Tokyo University of the Arts in 2010. Monira's solo exhibitions include shows at the Sultan Gallery in Kuwait and Tokyo Wonder Site, Japan. She's also, and she has a solo, kind of, is it, would you say solo show opening? It's a duo. A duo show that opens in Dubai on Monday. Uh, one by one gallery at Al, at Al Karl, is that right? Yeah. So, you know, please do make it to that if you can on Monday. Uh, she's also a founding member of the Artist Collective GCC, and she's currently in residency at the Rijks Academy in Amsterdam. Will you please join me in welcoming Monina Al-Kadiri. Thanks for being here, Maria. Um, Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So, these are... This is what you're showing in, yes. in the galleries next door. Uh, Spectrum 2, Spectrum 2. <laughs> so this, surprisingly, starts with your grandfather. Yes. <laughs> Could you tell us how? So being from Kuwait, I started to kind of uh, reflect on my own, let's say, personal history uh, as a kind of, I see myself as a, a post-oil being, let's say, in the world. And uh, my grandfather used to be a singer on a pearl diving boat. And I've never met him. He died before I was born, but 
to me, at this moment in time, I feel like his life was a fiction. You know, when, when, when they tried to revive this history in, in kind of national museums or TV, and, and they bring a band and they sing this music, or they have these wax uh, dioramas of pearl divers that don't look very, you know, well-made. Um, it feels like this history, or like fake heritage villages, It feels like this history was kind of made up somewhere. And it's so detached from my life, even though I'm kind of, you know, only two generations away from it, that I feel it's, it's fictional. So how can I try to create a kind of historical relationship uh, with my grandfather, basically? Um, so I started looking at maybe aesthetic or formal relationships. And then I found out that actually pearls and oil have the same color scheme. It's called dichroic color. And it basically reflects light uh, in the same way. And pearls are on the light side, oil is on the dark side. So it's a color spectrum. And then I decided to think that maybe this is the color of wealth production in the Gulf. And that it might have a life even after oil. So I'm starting to play with this idea a lot. And uh, one of the first uh, projects that I came up with was these... Uh, they're actually oil drills. So oil drills, I've been looking at them for many years, and they have these crazy, fantastic shapes. They look like, a, you know, an octopus or marine creature. Yeah, and I painted them in this dichroic color scheme. So it goes from light to dark. In this work, it goes basically also the evolution of the shape of the drill is part of the work, um, it, 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 they, they evolve all the time. And I feel like you said, like uh, this, the, the massage book, it, it, it feels like the drill is also an extension of my body, you know, as a person from this uh, period in history. And also I, I see them as objects, maybe from a future perspective, that, you know, they might become like some ancient tools that, you know, the people of oil used and, what is this? And, you know, maybe they were kind of sacred or cryptic in a way that we won't know what they're used for anymore, but they have these fantastic shapes. So it's, uh, yeah, uh, Maya actually quite characterized it quite well when she said maybe it's also like a modernist project. <laughs> in, in what way? That it's, it's, it's kind of playing with the idea of futurism in a very kind of, let's say, classical sense. <laughs> The notion, the fantasy, also maybe the tragedy mm -hmm. of the of the future yes. is obviously something that we, you know, anyone who's spent time in the in the Gulf, particularly over the last 15 or or 20 years, is is very very familiar mm -hmm. with. And there's a sense in which, I mean, I I arrived in Dubai in 2005, and it was extraordinary because, as I was just telling Sabrine, that I mean, it felt like I'd I'd finally landed somewhere where the, the project of the future was being kind of taken seriously in a way that, you know, the West hadn't been able to do for, for some time. You know, and, and what was interesting uh, over the, you know, particularly up till, you know, 2008 and 2009, I mean, there were two kinds of writing that were getting produced, particularly about, about Dubai and the Gulf. And, you know, there was investigative journalism and then there was kind of academic writing. There was almost no fiction writing done. And because, and I think one reason was because, you know, reality was already a kind of excess of fiction. It, it somehow made fiction writers or fiction imagineers redundant. Because it wasn't just a, a case of let's paint a pretty picture, it's paint, let's paint a pretty picture and let's sell it. 
to, you know, for billions of dollars, etc. And let's build it. And as someone that grew up, I mean, partly grew up, uh, I mean, I know you've grown, you, you also grew up in, you've lived in other places, but I know in the late 80s and the 90s, uh, you, you were in Kuwait. This sense of the future, was it something that you felt, did you, was it palpable growing up? Or was it something that in a, only made sense to you looking, looking back, particularly in the work that you're doing now? I think Kuwait has a kind of particular history compared to the rest of the Gulf because we had the, the Gulf War in 1990 and I was seven years old and it felt at that moment in time, you know, in the 80s, Kuwait was really happening, you know, yeah. and uh, it was like uh, Michael Jackson and McDonald's and really like Americanism to the max and... Uh, yeah, there was all sorts of like cultural activities, you know, Kuwait was also labeled, also labeled the Switzerland of the Middle East. Um, but everything kind of stopped in 1990, so the future stopped at mm. some point. And then uh, it felt in the 90s that Kuwait was going through some kind of paralysis. Yeah. And also it, it, it started feeling like maybe it's, it's not a, a long-term project, there were no more future visions of... <laughs> went to the year 2000 it was it felt like it was a temporary project now and I actually moved to Japan in 1999 and I lived there for 10 years and, and Japan is the future <laughs> it's not attempting to be the future it is the future and uh, Japan for me was also fascinating and exotic but also extremely dystopian and to me it felt like life after uh, capitalism gone wild <laughs> And to me, it, yeah, I, I started really becoming uh, nostalgic about the past and history and thinking about uh, narratives, regional narratives, uh, after going to Japan, basically, after seeing what the future is capable of. But that period of being in Japan, I guess that, in a sense, that made you an outsider yeah. looking into back home, but into the of Gulf, course. right? Uh, obviously, I was only able to go to Japan because of a scholarship from the Kuwaiti government, which is, you know, I also start to see it as a kind of, you know, I'm able to do this because of oil wealth. So I felt like uh, oil wealth is, is also driving my life, that all my bizarre fantasies and dreams are allowed to become realities because of oil wealth. Uh, so when I came back to Kuwait after Japan, I, I started to obviously see it in a different way. I am an outsider and a kind of freak in a way. <laughs> and, uh, but I see, you know, I, I have this also Japanese aesthetic. I don't know if you see it in my work, it's not directly uh, there, but it's also very hyper-visual and, and I learned this from being in Japan. But yeah, uh, I started obviously seeing my, my homeland, let's say in a very, very different way. Yeah, and, and I started to also fall in love with it again. <laughs> On the topic of Japan, I could probably speak for everyone that maybe has both been there, not been there, but it, it is one of the most kind of fascinating places still, I think, on the, on the, on the, on the planet. For me, one of the, the really um, captivating qualities of Japan is that it's a culture that seems, the late 20th century onwards, to have found a way of being both technologically precocious, right, Sony, everything, Hitachi, all of our, all the kind of gadgets that we had from the you know, 70s and the 80s onwards, they managed to, to both produce that and, and inhabit that without sacrificing a kind of existential link to their own tradition, to heritage, and even to ancient spiritual beliefs. Again, the, the normal kind of techno 
deterministic narrative would be, you know, the new the new comes along that destroys what precedes it, right? Like it's a it's a kind of question of successive replacements ultimately, you know. But Japan somehow um, seems to avoid that kind of like sacrificial choice making. It's like, well, we can have our you know uh, our Shintoism and the most amazing technology. How did that kind of dawn on you while you were while you were living there? Yeah, I mean, also Japan obviously is a special case. It, it had an isolationist policy for hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, so it was isolated from the world culturally. If a foreigner stepped into their lands, they, they would be killed. So I think that part of their history really was able to preserve their culture, but also deepen it in a way that is different from the rest of the world. But after Japan was modernized, I have to say, uh, now, if you go maybe from, you know, extreme north of Japan to the extreme south, you will see the same cities and the same buildings and the same shops and the same... It's almost like a clone city repeating itself. So even though the temples exist in between these skyscrapers or, the, you know, the artistic side or the cultural side... I mean, there is some kind of zombie formalism going on with, uh, with the city itself and the urban landscape. And uh, so Japan actually, I, in my view, hasn't been able to, let's say, preserve itself. And an old Japanese businessman once described why this is to me. And he said, you know, we live in a country with earthquakes. Things will get destroyed and we know it will get destroyed. So we always have to rebuild it. And it's very, uh, there's a very famous shrine called the uh, Ise, Ise Shrine. It's a very, very old, year, uh, uh, thousand-year-old shrine in Ise and uh, Shinto Shrine. And it gets built, rebuilt every 20 years in the same materials. But it's new, but they rebuilt the exact same building again and again. So, yeah, I mean, this is like a Japanese philosophy. It's called wabi-sabi. It's about the impermanence of things. But I also think it, it really reflects the climate and the, let's say, the, the construction of Japan itself as a, as a land on top of all these, you know, earthquake-prone plates, you know? This word that Bana and, uh, and Scott have elicited, discontents. I mean, do you feel like a discontent of of technology? Yes, of course. Um, I mean, living in Tokyo, it was like you could, your wallet is part of your phone, there's a chip in your phone where you can just pass your phone on everything and pay. So you could go on for a week without having any human interaction. You could go to the supermarket, pay with your phone, go there, go to the train station, go in the train with your phone. You don't actually have to speak to people. So once me and my friend of mine sat in a subway station and just said hello to random strangers, and you should have seen the reactions. They would run away. Like a, a businessman dropped his, his briefcase and started running. <laughs> and it, I thought this is like the extreme, you know, that, that technology like, you know, envelops your life so much that interacting with other people becomes... Uh, like a, a novelty or something really, you, know, you could be scared of it, you know? So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Japan was total dystopia to me. <laughs> I was wondering whether for you technology, is it a medium or is it a subject matter that you deal with or is it, is it both? I mean, I mean how, for me, how, how I, conscious are you of technology when you're doing what you do? 
Yeah, my, uh, my PhD thesis was called The Aesthetics of Sadness in the Middle East. Um, I'm very uh, interested in, let's say, tragedy and, and sadness and discontent subjects. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't view technology really as a medium more than a kind of a romantic actor in a tragic play. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my, my work is very, I think, romantic in a way. Okay, here are your quickfire questions, Mira. What would you reveal about yourself in an interview that you would never otherwise reveal in any other situation? <laughs> that my grandfather sang on a boat. <laughs> oh, you told us that before. That doesn't count. Okay, question two. How do you imagine your life changing as a result of being famous? It would be nice to meet new people. <laughs> Fantastic answer. Question three. How would being interviewed make you feel? I think it's on your face right now. Yes, I'm very nervous all the time. <laughs> Nervousness. Will you please join me in thanking Munir al -Kadir. A little, A little interlude now. Uh, Maya asked me to, to read a, a short excerpt from, from our book. So that's what I'll do now. Last weekend... Last weekend, I realized that I played the board game Monopoly maybe 20 or 30 times in my life, yet I don't remember anyone actually winning a game. I don't remember anyone ever saying, there, I've officially won and the game is now officially over. Instead, I mostly remember bored, irritated people drifting away to get a snack, answer the phone or what have you, and never returning. In the end, there's the last person at the board counting money and feeling fleetingly rich, but of course... <laughs> The game is over and the money and its thrill are all voided. In the world of optical fiber communications, there's a phenomenon called latency. Latency describes the fact that if an optical fiber goes from Chicago to New York, it probably travels not in a straight line, but rather in a series of right angles and switchbacks and zigzags before it reaches New York City. An optical fiber cable traveling in nearly straight line between the two cities would, however, allow the signals it carries to arrive in New York a few millionths of a second faster than the zigzagging line. This is latency. These, these few millionths of a second would, in the computerized worlds of stock sales, give a minuscule but distinct, distinct advantage to the people with a straighter cable. There has been in our culture in the last decade a particular group of reasonably smart people who hired incredibly smart people, mathematicians mostly, to design algorithms that exploit time-space phenomena such as latency, as well as other small yet distinct phenomena, to vacuum insane amounts of money out of the economy for doing absolutely nothing ex except exploit systemic flaws in the digitized financial world. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions, simply for hiring bright grad students like from this kind of university, hurling some cash at them, then hitting the return key and making a billion dollars in the wink of an eye. We all remember the night of the crash, especially when the Dow went below 7,000, when it seemed like money was actually going to stop working. And by saying not working, I don't simply mean not going to be worth as much as it once was. I mean that money itself would simply cease to function. It would just not be damaged but broken beyond the point of fixability. For a day or two or three, more people than just me were mentally picturing libertarian fantasies of well-dressed, well-nourished adult human beings walking the streets like zombies, trying to buy gasoline, 
groceries, sofas, plane tickets, except money no longer works. Money is over. In 2008, we came perilously close to killing money, exposing in the process how out of date money's infrastructure has become. And there's possibly a parallel universe out there alongside our very own, where things didn't go quite so well in the end, where money really was broken to the point of unfixability. It's a game where the Monopoly game just sort of ended one day and nobody was quite sure why. <laughs> Thank you. So our last guest for our session is the second artist, Sabrine Wiersteg. We were both just discussing how both of our names get mispronounced at Starbucks. You just massacred mine. Uh, yes, uh, with in great intention. So any of you who have uh, non-normal names will know that when you go to Starbucks and they ask you for your name, it's much easier to give them uh, a simple name rather than your real name, because otherwise you may never get your coffee. So my Starbucks name is Simon, <laughs> because forget Shimon. Sabrine, what's your Starbucks name? Steve. Steve. <laughs> so Sabrine Fishdick, or AKA Steve, uh, lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. He received a BFA from the School of Art Institute of Chicago and received his MFA from the University of Illinois in Chicago. Steve employs algorithmic programs to access, extract, and distill from a vast library of online imagery, which he presents in gallery as painterly abstractions on canvas or digital displays. Arriving at the intersection of the digital world and art history, his work addresses the ideas and perceptions of agency, choice, and chance. Will you please welcome Sabrine, a.k.a. Steve Bish. Could you tell us a little bit about like? Yeah, it's uh, quite simply a digital program that is connected to the internet. It has two hemispheres or panels. The left side is an algorithmic program, computer program that I've written. Well, the whole thing is a computer program. But the left side is generating a, a, a painting continuously, although every once in a while it does erase itself just to start anew. But it paints continuously based on algorithms that I've written to simulate the affects of the act of putting pigment onto a canvas and continues to generate compositions, um, never repeating itself, but repeating or using a set of instructions that have a whole lot of randomness built into them um, and chance. Every one minute, 60 seconds, it uploads itself to the Google search by image platform API and whatever Google seems to think that it's trying to make a painting of, it downloads that image and presents that image on the right panel. Thank it's you. brilliant. <laughs> did, did someone just say that? That's really wicked. Wicked. Yeah, it's, it's wicked. Could you say where this fits in your practice as someone who deals both with painting and programming? And tell us how that, how those two things came together in the in, in the in the first place. I guess my interest in circumstance and um, chance and presence. Um, I have a lot to do with the way I look at being an artist in general. Um, I see it as, I see the artist's life in a way as being the ultimate work that I'm, that I'm making. And 
in many ways, my particular moment in time of being on this earth has traversed that period where the internet and digital technology has come to pretty much dominate our, our daily existence. And my work has very consciously tried to embrace and describe those circumstances through the eyes of an individual. That said, um, my career aspirations to being an artist and pursuing this lifestyle led me to moving to New York, which I did uh, about 12 years ago. And I was shocked and surprised to find out how many people were still undertaking abstract painting, like in the very mid-century New York school of abstract painting happens. And baffled in many ways, but fascinated. And ultimately, I became um, incredibly uh, respectful of the, the decision that some people had to live in, in some ways, seemed like a more historical way in, in terms of a relationship to a medium and to a practice and to a lifestyle that mostly involved, you know, working five jobs and then taking whatever fraction of time you have left to um, sit in probably a small windowless studio and um, think <laughs> and undergo, uh, you know, existential time and, and produce and continue this dialogue of working with paint. My work had prior to that been using digital algorithms and um, my general death drive and laziness leads me to want to just do everything in it from a chair with barely moving my hands instead of like actually making gestures or mixing things and smelling things, being um, a programmer. Um, so I started just exploring this idea of abstract painting but through algorithms. And I've been doing that. I thought it was going to be like maybe a six-month Parlay, but it's been like four or five years of obsessive um, algorithmic uh, wanking. <laughs> um, that said, um, I've produced probably about 500 or 600,000 paintings that are all on hard drives, and I continue to make them obsessively. And I think that in a lot of ways relates to a lot of the things that have happened in recent years in terms of the, the commodity market of of fine art production, and by doing this, I mean, in, in some ways it's an act of resistance just to overproduce in this way. That said, I got really into the Google search by image thing, and I started to say, hey, what does this painting look like in this Google search algorithm? And it became kind of a nice way to be able to present this end of my practice in a real-time way. I'm, so, I'm wondering if your, do you think your mother knows what an algorithm is? Kind of. How do you think your mother would describe an algorithm. Can we call her? Can we Skype what her? What time is it? <laughs> yeah, we could call we her. We could call her. Can we get a hotline to... Can we get... To... A... <laughs> Can we get... <laughs> um, do you remember the, lo the first time you heard the word algorithm? This is to all of you, actually. Um, and was it in the last few years? Or... No. I've been using no? it for a long time. Sabrina, what? What? But when do you think it was? I still don't... I remember arguing a lot or having and still having a little bit of a confusion between logarithm and algorithm. And it seems as though algorithm... Oh, don't we all? Right? <laughs> Keeps me up at night. It seems like algorithm has definitely um, one. It's one. <laughs> Let's ask our audience. Who knows what an algorithm is? Please put your hand up. Who has not heard of the word algorithm? Oh. The only person Hopefully you'll leave here having learned something today. <laughs> <laughs> so your mother doesn't know an algorithm. 
well. <laughs> so if we go back to the this, sure. if we go back to like old-fashioned question, old-fashioned question for new kind of work, where is the authorship in this kind of work? Do you care about authorship, and does your algorithm care about authorship? I don't think so. I mean, I take it and I claim it, of course, but um, it's not that important of a discussion for me. No. 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 But if someone did a work just like this... Story? Yeah, go for it. I'm wondering how far this relinquishing of artistic control can go. Will you one day be able to be both retired and also phenomenally productive at the same time? I mean, will you be able to get to a point where you don't even need to go and I mean, sit, at your, sit at your computer anymore? Unpaid algorithms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I watched a couple of your interviews and... There, you just mentioned it yourself, that you moved to New York and you, you, dis, you sort of discovered this, the practice and the faith in abstract painting, mm -hmm. still very much alive, still mm -hmm. very, very vital. Mm -hmm. And there are many reasons for that, mm -hmm. from, you know, pure nostalgia, myopia, all the way through to, as you say, kind of commodities, mm -hmm. thinking about painting, still the most commodity-oriented art, art um, thing there is today, right? Yeah. So... Should computers learn to paint or write songs or make films? Apparently an, an AI wrote a song this week that sounds very much like an early Beatles song. Really? So, yeah, it's all, it's all happening. Steve, here are your quick-fire questions. Do you, believe, do you believe in royalty? Royalty. Royalty. If you, were a, <laughs> if you were a royal, how would your life be different? Would you get better quality emails or would you be free from email? Better quality email. Instinct said free from, but better quality. Better quality email. And is fame uh, like something that's dished out randomly by the universe? Or do we, in fact, earn it? Quickly. God, your processor is... Uh, uh, oh, I'm slow. <laughs> Go I Windows. Mean, there's a lot to think about here. Windows, These are not, um, Windows 98. Let's ask, let's ask Google, shall Andy we? Warhol. <laughs> Andy Warhol. <laughs> Will you please join me in thanking Steve Supreme? We will open it up to the floor in a minute. Please think questions and put your hands up. I've got some more quick fire. You've only got two seconds to answer each of these. Any longer than that and you don't get dinner <laughs> this evening. The first question is for Steve. Uh, Steve, what if there was a drug that made you feel more like yourself? Would you take it? Scott. Scott. Who the hell is Steve? I don't know. Oh, Steve, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Scott. Apparently, apparently, I've already taken the drug. Exactly. You're Clearly, I have. Like someone else. So, there's a drug, and it would make you feel, make yourself feel more like yourself. Would you take it? Uh, probably not. No. <laughs> Why? Uh, because uh, <sighs> I, I, I don't. Be, I think that uh, if if I were to be doing that, I'd really just be looking for a way to escape myself. More than anything else. Thank you. Next question, Maria. Does your life still feel like a story? Yes. <laughs> what happens next? Explosion. <laughs> Cue Bruce Willis. Banner. Are we smarter than we were ten years ago, or stupider than we are t than we were ten years ago? Uh, different time, different problems, different challenges. Are you practicing to be a politician? <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. Uh, next question for Steve, not Scott. When you're offline, do you feel lonely? When was the last time you felt lonely? On stage Two. with the rest of us here? <laughs> Me too. Um, are there any questions from the audience? Lady in the white and then gentleman in the grey. I have two questions. One is for Monira and one is for Seaburn. I think I pronounced your name right. Thank you. The first one is Monira. You went to Japan. I, I guess you applied for a scholarship. Was there a specific reason? Were you looking for something that you were thinking of finding in Japan? And what are you looking for at the Rags Academy in Amsterdam? Uh, when I moved to Japan, I was 16 years old. And I was obsessed with Japanese cartoons, and I believed I was one. You know, it was at that time of my life when I don't know what fact from fiction. And I thought if I go to cartoon land, I'll suddenly turn into this amazing anime character. And that didn't work. <laughs> But uh, yeah, uh, that's why I went to Japan. And uh, it took me kind of 10 years to grow out of the fantasy. As for the Reichs Academy, it's an artist's residency. Um, it's a great opportunity for an artist to have a studio, technicians, and it's, it's a great place to be, I think, for any artist. And it's, one of, I think, one of the longest in the world. It's two years. Two years. Yeah. So I feel like I'm in a kid in a candy store. I can, you know, I'm originally a video artist, but now I can make sculptures. So let's see what happens. And my question for Sebron is, like an artist who makes sketches and sometimes just dishes something, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of artworks on your hard disk. Yeah. Is there ever an artwork completed that you say, I'm throwing this one out because I don't like it or something? But just to build on that, I wonder whether, the, or you mentioned sort of trying to decipher whether something yeah. is better or worse than... Value judgment. Value judgment. And I'm wondering whether... Uh, yeah, how, you know, what's the criteria of those value judgments? Because, again, in the, like the McLuhan, like one of the McLuhan-isms is that if we don't have new languages mm -hmm. that keep up with new reality, mm -hmm. we're always somehow doomed to never really understand the new reality, right? So mm -hmm. that's why he was a great inventor of neologisms. Mm -hmm. One would imagine or hope that one of the things that is interesting about asking a computer to make a so-called painting mm -hmm. is that it will, might potentially do something that you or I or any other painter may not do. Correct. But then, you know, the, the value judgment, once it's done, right. is this beautiful, is this X or Y? Right. You know, are we, all, are we then always somehow doomed to somehow evaluate that according to the history of abstract painting that was a human history, you know. What, like, do we, need, do we need computers to be art critics as well? Hi, my name is Dylan, and I'm an interactive media arts student. Um, from the, I'm visiting from the campus in Shanghai. So I have a comment for Sabrina, and then I have a question for curators. So my comment for Sabrina is that I really liked your work. It was actually my favorite out of um, the entire collection, and I love the way it was kind of able to so beautifully transcend um, this kind of a medic relationship between art and nature. Um, and then my question for the curators is, um, so I kind of love working at this intersection between um, art and technology because of the different ways that people from around the world can interpret and use these, these different pieces of technology and these different works. 
Um, and I was wondering how, or if you could talk a little bit about the process or what it was like to curate um, for such an international audience here at NYUAD. It wasn't really a question to Sabrine, was it? It was basically saying your work's wicked. Yes. It's another wicked, yeah. Okay. I mean, one of the things that we really wanted to try and do was reflect... The, the population of Abu Dhabi is very global, and we wanted to try and reflect that in the artists who were represented in the show, because we felt that this is something that's not unique and tied to one particular location, but is something that's really affecting everybody. And so we really tried to cast as wide of a net as possible to include as many people as we could in order to really have that, have that conversation. Gentlemen at the front here. Thank you. It's more of a comment, but I really enjoyed the show. Um, uh, I think it, it shows well that, I mean, the, the interaction with technology is multi-sided. But as users, we only once see often one side of it. And contemporary art can help us bring and see the other sides of that. And I think that that is great. But I've seen shows like this in other parts of the world. Uh, uh, and, and I was, again, my, my question goes again to the last question also is like the contextualization to this part of the world. I would like to push you a bit on that because, uh, for instance, I would have loved to see, uh, when I think about the issue of technology in this part of the world recently in social uh, in society, um, I think about, for example, the Arab revolutions, the role technology played in that. And I would love to see an Arab artist, for example, on, on this issue of technology and social dissent. Uh, included. Uh, so how do you, again, what guides you in co contextualizing this in, in, in this region? And I think, coming also from this region, that we have less of a, a critical perspective on technology than in other parts of the world. Thank you. Uh, so similar to uh, what Scott said earlier, I think um, this is a global topic and the UAE is uh, almost the perfect place to talk about a global topic. It's uh, in the world centrally located geographically. Um, the population here is extremely connected to all over the world. That's why, especially in a university museum with such a diverse student population and Abu Dhabi being such a diverse population in general, this is the best place to have this type of conversation. We did try to include Arab artists speaking about this and Munira made us proud. And she's one of, uh, among others. We're going to give a tour of the exhibition after, so... Uh, I can highlight to you the other ones, uh, other people in the region that are working on this. If I had to say that the exhibition in general is about um, basically the social and political impact um, of technology. And there are, I would say, particularly three, three pieces in the exhibition that are, uh, that are discussing the political. We are running out of time. We'll take two more questions. Uh, lady here. Assuming that, I kind of assumed that the title was an allusion to Freud's civilization and its discontents, and even if it wasn't, and you had your inter own interpretation, a part in the book um, was talking about how we escape it through intoxicants, powerful distractions, and I think stimulants, I can't really remember at the time, but if you talked about technology becoming this thing that's so important to us and everything, how do you think that we use technology to either distract ourselves from ourselves or how do we use it in terms of its relation to people like for example i know yours using it and using the google search engine that could maybe it's not what you meant but to me it shows how we're searching for these things and we don't always get what we want but we do get something in the end or just how the oil we're getting we're changing but still saying the same even though we think we're evolving we're really not but maybe that's just my interpretation what are your opinions on that I mean, I guess the first thing I think when you ask a question like that and about 
being a distraction or an enabler to the self is how do you even begin to define the self? And I think that in many ways, technology is revealing to us that what we may have thought of as our sentientness is, is in fact a lie and that we don't end necessarily at, the, at our skin, you know? So that becomes a big issue. And in many ways, I think my work is reflecting on that idea. And the intelligence that Google is building is very much based on us, all of our contributions to it. You know, we're giving it all of our information, all of our knowledge, our collective knowledge. And they're writing an algorithms that can analyze that data and feed it back to us. In many ways, it becomes a kind of a ubiquitous knowledge base, an information base, you know. And that's a really unique time, you know, in, in, in history and the evolution of... Yeah, I, I wanted to actually kind of meditate on why oil is, you know, it's a... It's kind of a random bounty, you know, it just happened to be here. Uh, but in a way, we've incorporated it into our identity as people. But it's actually just, uh, you know, fossils dissolving into each other for millions of years, and then we dug it up. It's actually, you know, ancient sunlight, but now we can use current sunlight. So it's a, it's also, the, you know, our relationship with the sun and... Also, like how, you know, I, I always think I have an existential anxiety about what will I become when oil is over? So not maybe when oil is finished, but when oil ceases to have value, uh, will I still be Kuwaiti? Will, will this region still look like it is? So it's also about myself and uh, notions of myself related to a material that is just there under the ground that has... No cultural value, but it actually is part of our culture now. Last question, and then we're going to have to wrap it up. Hi, uh, my name is Brian. I'm a faculty member in Arts and Humanities here. So thanks very much, all of you. I think it's been a fantastic panel to go along with a really terrific show. And I think it's been enlightening. It's really given me a lot to think about. Um, Scott, I wanted to go back to your... The, I'm, gl I'm glad that you asked about the genealogy of the name of the show because I th thought the invisible threads as a descendant from the Emperor's New Clothes is really revealing, I guess, if we, to, to be punny. But, but the idea that clothes... The Emperor's New Clothes are obviously are invisible, but clothes are supposed to cover. But when I think about threads as a metaphor, I think about connection. And so now I've spent a lot of time thinking in the last hour about media attempting to cover and attempting to connect, and that's, I think, going to be productive for some really interesting ways I interact with this work. Uh, the, con the, the question that I wanted to ask, though, is maybe related to that, but it's the thing that I didn't hear you talk at all about, any of you, is pleasure and playfulness. And when I looked at the show, my first encounter was just how fun it is and how funny some of the work is, and that there's an intense amount of pleasure that we derive from these media that are extensions of our, of our bodies, right? And I wondered if that's something you guys could say a little bit more about, the fun of this, the pleasure, not just the dark, scary, sci-fi side of it all. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually really glad that you asked about that because I think it's one of the things that really makes this show so engaging is the fact that a lot of the works are very playful. And I think that it's through that sense of play and engagement that the themes that we're trying to address here and get people to think about 
Uh, it's kind of like, you know, slipping in a little bit of medicine with, with some sugar or something, right? Uh, so while they, they, it's a way of engaging people immediately and giving you some almost instant gratification, right? But then hopefully will be a little bit more resonant and you can reflect back on it. Um, Uh, yeah, the, the, that's that's the entire purpose of this show. It's just, <laughs> just uh, a recruitment <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so much of this work is fun and playful, and uh, and and that's something that I don't think that we consciously sought out, but is really was a theme that sort of emerged as we were going with it. Alternative title: LOL? Question mark. <laughs> LOL and its discontents. <laughs> we have run out of time. Thanks um, so much to you guys. Thank, please join me in thanking Sabrine, Munira, Scott and Barna. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.